Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everyone, to a very particularly special episode of Reconsider, perhaps the most special yet. Uh, forgive my ignorance, but why is this episode special, Eric? This is our 64th episode, a huge milestone, 64. What's special about 64? Uh, actually, absolutely nothing, but it's the first time since like episode 20 that we've counted. I'm just really excited that it's this many episodes. Ah. Everyone, but for real, welcome to the 64th episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be doing a quick whirlwind tour around the world, covering some interesting, important, impactful stuff that's been going on in various countries, in various continents. And the reason we're doing that is because we've ignored the world outside of you know the realm of finance. For the last six months, more or less. And there's a lot to get caught up on. A lot of big stuff has happened. A lot of it is hyped up. And a lot of important stuff is ignored. So we're going to take a little bit of time on a few of these things. Just to give everyone an opportunity to reconsider or consider. Before we get started, this month's Agora podcast of the month is The History of China. By our good friend Chris, who at some point we're going to get on the show when we finally do like a really deep dive on China, which we've needed to do, it needs to have anyway, he'll join us. He's already agreed. He's great. Go to history of China. He is the authority podcast on China and it's a ton of fun. I'm still trying to catch up. He has a boatload of content. Additionally, if you like things like philosophy, which you might, because if you listen to the show, you read stuff like that. You should check out OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is a website platform that essentially lets you delve into the great books in a curated fashion. So you will have a philosopher specialist guide you through some of the readings, talk you through in discussion groups. And if you use the promo code REC, you will get a 25% discount. Mm. That is onlinegreatbooks.com slash REC. So the four countries we're going to be diving in today are South Africa, Turkey, Iran, and of course, everyone's favorite, 
North Korea. Xander, take us away. South Africa. We'll start with South Africa and we'll begin with a disclaimer. It is essentially impossible to talk about South African politics without using racial terminology since everything in South Africa is so bound up in race and racial issues. So when people talk about political issues in South Africa, it these terms are used, and it's usually considered acceptable and not derogatory to use terms like blacks, colors, and whites. There's also a large population of Indians, and that's where Mahatma Gandhi, you might have heard of him, actually cut his teeth as an attorney. But this is just a heads up. We aren't trying to be derogatory or mean anything negative when we say blacks or whites. It's just necessary to discuss the landscape. So that said... People who are a little familiar with South Africa often know the phrase apartheid and know that it was a institutionally racially segregated political system that was set up in 1948. And the government was essentially run by white Afrikaners and Afrikaners are descendants of the Dutch that colonized South Africa in the mid 17th century. Now, that doesn't mean that there was an extreme brutal racism before 1948. It just became more institutionalized at that point. Now, in the early 1990s, apartheid essentially was overturned um, by someone you might have heard of, Nelson Mandela, who languished in, uh, languished in prison for several decades under the Afrikaner National Party before he was released and became the country's president. It's really a, a remarkable story. If you haven't read his autobiography, you should. It's a really good read. It is a really good read. Yeah. Now, the, the thing is, getting this deal done that actually overturned apartheid and brought a new political system into place with a constitution required some concessions because... That's how the world works. There are negotiations between Mandela and the African National Congress, the ANC, which became the predominant party following the end of apartheid, and the National Party, the white Afrikaner government. The big one was property rights. Basically, the whole post-apartheid deal, the government that came about when apartheid fell, was the result of a concession between political and economic rights. So the wealthy white class basically retained all of the property and assets that they had accumulated throughout decades of apartheid rule, and the protection of these assets were enshrined in Section 25 of the Constitution. Yep, and deals like this are crappy and you know painful and sort of tough to swallow. And it's also worth noting that Sometimes the world tries not to work with this way, and it doesn't always work out well. Um, a The counterpoint to how South Africa ended its apartheid system was Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, which was very similar. It had a white-dominated government and economy. It had institutional, like deeply institutionalized racism. And instead of coming to a deal, the black population in Zimbabwe more or less drove the whites out of the country as much as possible and seized their land. It was a much more kind of Marxist communist uprising. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe, their economy crashed after that, in large part due to the fact that they'd driven out the experience and talent that was running the economy, right? Because the oppressed black workers or people hadn't learned how to run businesses and run farms and such. And so there was this major crash when they kicked the white population out. Um, now, this didn't happen in South Africa, 
But the economy has still languished. It's doing better than many of its neighbors, but not great. Unemployment is still super high, especially among blacks. In fact, economic well-being, levels of health and education, all those indicators that we point to for like the material well-being of a population are still extremely unequal between the minority white population and the majority black population. And so there is a movement to say, look, the, the history of this institutional racism and the difference in like material starting points that these two populations have that was driven by an unjust system. You know, it's perpetuating this systemic inequality. And so to remedy it, there's a movement for what's called land expropriation without compensation, which is exactly what it sounds like. The government wants to take land and property from whites and redistribute it to blacks. Part of this is for sort of, you know, correcting historical injustice and the sort of perpetuating the sense of perpetuating injustice from the fact that, you know, whites get to inherit a lot of nice stuff and blacks don't. And that is a large part of it. But it's but at the same time, you know, just to help the economy as a whole and look out for the welfare of the population of South Africa, there's this idea to spread some of the wealth and use it to boost funding of education, economic productivity, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of economists would agree that having a very large, very poor population actually hurts the economy as a whole, even when it's the same amount of money. And this has not yet happened largely and and basically because the Constitution says specifically and explicitly that expropriation without compensation, that is, without paying a fair market value for the assets, is illegal. That was part of that deal. And this doesn't restrict expropriation with compensation. So the government can buy land and then redistribute it. But there's a whole host of issues on how to value property that's been held on for a long time. Let's say it's been in a family for decades. You know, it's hard to say what is fair or what is market, because as we talked about last episode about sovereign debt, you can't actually for certain determine the fair market value of something until it's been paid for. And so there's a lot of political complications around that. The other problem, of course, being where does the money come from? There's a whole lot of wealth held by very few people. And so how does the government get the wealth to pay for it? So it's it's been a major issue, even though it's technically possible. So the reason we're bringing this up now is because as it stands, it seems like a movement towards expropriation without compensation is ongoing and it is seeming more likely that something like this actually happens. And that matters because massive property seizures have, for example, like in Zimbabwe in the past, led to cases of what's really mass violence. And arguably, you know, towards the end of the apartheid government, South Africa basically fell into what was a real sort of like simmering civil war that a lot of people aren't really familiar with. Thousands of people died and it's more almost sort of like an event of mass violence and things like that can happen when large amounts of assets are taken without compensation and redistributed. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that is something that people are concerned about. But back in March, uh, the South African parliament set up a committee to basically discuss and review the issue and report back in August with suggestions regarding whether or not 
uh, expropriation without compensation should move ahead. Since then, it seems like the ANC, the African National Congress, which is the majority party in South Africa, may be willing to just kind of like go ahead and test the issue anyways by basically starting the process and seeing if the Supreme Court blocks the decision. And, you know, interestingly, in South Africa's history, the courts have generally been relatively fair. And some pro-Afrikaner judges who are actually in the National Party actually ruled in favor of Mandela and some of his supporters at one point when they were on trial. And, you know, this didn't always happen. But the, the point is, the judiciary has a history of having a somewhat more even hand than other institutions in the country. And there's a good chance that the judiciary is going to be testing the constitutionality of whatever the ANC decides to do. Public hearings are currently being held, and that's sort of where we stand right now. And so there's some hysteria around this, partly because of the Zimbabwe disaster slash ethnic cleansing of whites that occurred in the 1980s. So, you know, white farmers and whites generally are worried about having all of their stuff forcibly taken. And it being 2018, of course, as soon as someone is worried about something, you've got camera crews all over them that want to have a good story to invoke more fear and and get more views, right? So it's not entirely clear how this is going to work out. It is something where, you know, presumably if you're a white landowner that has had this land in your family for a long time, the idea of losing it is not a great one. And there's a lot of what would we do? And of course, there is the fear of if they're driven from their land, is there going to be sort of like a reprisal period of what happens? And it's difficult to say how this is going to work out at all. And of course, it's an incredibly difficult moral slash ethical slash justice problem that we don't want to weigh in on ourselves. But I'm sure you can imagine many philosophers, if you got all the great philosophers in the room and had them say, what should we do here? They would have really, really gritty argument about what's the best move to make, what's the most fair and most just thing to do. So it's icky. And it may have a major impact on Southern Africa's largest economy. All right. That's South Africa. What are we doing next, Eric? Uh, We're doing North Korea. So, you know, North Korea about to have World War Three. Maybe Trump and Kim are secretly best friends. Maybe it's about to be World War Three again. Maybe still best friends. Who knows? And then, of course, the big talk in Singapore came up. They had a little chin wag. Everyone was very excited about it. And... When it was over, half the media said it was genius and the war's over, and half the media said it was stupid and it's going to be a disaster. And we'll do the reconsider moment at the beginning here. How'd it turn out? You know, now that it's been a few weeks, how'd it, how'd it go? Do you know? And of course, you probably already have an opinion about the talk because you have feelings about Trump and possibly you have feelings about the talk more sophisticated than it is good or it is bad. But are you able to elaborate in some way about, you know, what's been the result and and what's going on next? Or has it just dropped to be replaced with whatever is the like exciting and outrageous thing that has been going on since then? And have we just kind of forgotten it because it was just fun to be outraged then and it's fun to be outraged about something new now. So lecture over, but that's good framing for what we're about to share here. So Xander, take us away. So personalities aside, which is often what the media tends to focus on, what are the actual fundamental interests of each country? Ultimately, the U.S. wants to eliminate North Korea's ability to hit 
the U.S. mainland with nuclear weapons, and ultimately North Korea wants an effective deterrent to prevent U.S. intervention in Korean affairs. Now, you can argue why North Korea wants that, be it for regime survival or a long-term goal to reunite the Korean peninsula under a North-led regime, but they want that deterrent. And you will notice that those two interests, the interests of those two countries, are essentially mutually exclusive. One requires restricting the ability to have a nuclear strike capability against the U.S., and the other requires having it. So handshakes and smiles and visceral reactions to Kim Jong-un, snapping selfies in Singapore aside. What has changed since then between the U.S. and North Korea? Not much. Now, South Korea and North Korea continue to have negotiations about small things like reopening joint factories on the border and connecting rail lines. So that's kind of new. But they've also had conversations about this before. It's just been years ago. So it's not radically new. And you know what? Side point on the Kim Jong-un taking selfies things. Remember when like all of the liberal media, and I say liberal media right now because it was generally left-leaning outlets that focus on these issues, actually cared about all of the massive human rights abuses that this guy was responsible for. And then as soon as they took a couple of selfies in Singapore, like a lot of those same outlets were like, oh, hey, look, he's just kind of like a guy. Isn't it kind of like cool that this like dictator is getting out and just like having fun on the town? Anyways, rant over. I just like that frustrated me. I do remember, I think, after the handshake and hug moment between Moon, who's the president of South Korea, and Kim, the president of the North, one of the trending, one of the big trending tweets was, I never thought I'd see a day where I was more proud of the president of North Korea than my own president. And sort of like, uh, I don't know, man, like, that seems, seems a bit of a stretch. And it's just, you know, we want to be mad, right? And so, like, there's a thing, and our brains just go, how do I be mad about this? Right. And the right, the right wing does it too, of course. And we're just exposed to much more of the left. But it's, you know, it's just fun to be mad. And, you know, that's why we love sports because it's like, oh, look, there's another team. Let's be mad at them because they're there. Right. So I've been watching the World Cup recently. Nice. Cheering for Uruguay of all teams. I've just been really excited about them. And they're 3 0 now. So I guess I'm on the right bandwagon. Woo, Uruguay. Anyway, so. Yeah, not much has changed yet. And of course, we're sure Pompeo is like running around in the background doing what Pompeo does. And, you know, there's a bunch of flurry of activity from both sides because there is, you know, there is an opportunity and opening here. And you do have these diametrically opposed needs. So it's going to be tough. And can something happen? Who knows? But Xander, what is the big deal if North Korea ends up going nuclear? Well, it's not just about North Korea, right? If North Korea gets a nuclear deterrent, it effectively restricts what the U.S. is going to be willing to do in the Pacific arena for its allies. So enter Japan, which has been dependent on the U.S. for security since 1945, when the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on the country and ended World War II. And Japan is beginning to ask sort of a troublesome question, which is, you know, if we were to get into danger, would the U.S. actually come to our aid or would we be on our own? And for a country that has basically outsourced their defense needs for the last seven decades and focus on economic growth instead, that's really quite a change in perspective. So the U.S. pulling back from the Pacific risks potentially a remilitarized Japan, as well as just sort of a general, what's the word I'm looking for here? It just risks the current U.S.-backed alliance structure in the Pacific, which has grown over the last 
several decades. And that has ramifications for U.S.-China relations and China-everyone else relations. So when thinking about North Korea, it's important to think about basically the whole Pacific arena, which is huge and critically important to the U.S. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Because of. A country can achieve regional hegemony in the Pacific, then it begins to threaten the U.S. I think the word you were looking for when you said, oh, what's that thing is Pax Americana. And so I guess you get a bonus reconsider moment on North Korea here that we're in our 30s. And for other people who are in their 30s or perhaps even younger or a little older, there's this, you know, our own experience has been one of nearly perpetual peace and this is known in the realist community as Pax Americana because the United States has such preponderance of force and willingness to use it that it keeps a lid on things. And I think when you don't study foreign policy, your thought is like, oh, the world is just peaceful now. Like, that's just what happens or has happened. And this is where we get Fukuyama's end of history, which now everyone is starting to snigger at a little bit. Um, but that there's a sense that like now that the Cold War is over, the U.S. won, liberalism won, democracy won, hooray. There's just going to be these small changes, but history certainly has never been through that before. And it's starting to look like that the, the many millennia long arcs of history are not suddenly going to get suspended. And so long story short is this idea that like Japan is destined to necessarily be a peaceful paradise of Pocky and anime forever, right? Like, that's not necessarily true, right? Like Japan has real security needs. It has real geopolitical needs that it will respond to if they are not being met. And those of us that like, we obviously have a sense of how we think history goes. We think it's driven by geopolitics and countries responding to their geopolitical needs. But we need to think about like we need to imagine the idea that like Japan becomes remilitarized because it no longer believes that the United States is going to guarantee its security. That could happen. And that's something that is one of like many considerations that needs to be kept in mind by the folks who are tasked with doing the North Korea work. So the world can get really messy on us real fast. And, you know, we can't just imagine that it's going to be fine if we don't do something evil or stupid to screw it up. Anyway, that's North Korea. Next, Iran. Since we last talked about something that wasn't economics, uh, the nuclear deal between the U.S. and Iran has effectively ended. Technically, a waiver wasn't renewed, but for all practical purposes, the nuke deal, the JCPOA, 
is dead. And what we've seen in the last couple of days are the resumption of fairly large-scale protests in Tehran, the capital of Iran. And the proximate cause of these protests has been the declining currency, the Iranian rial, which really has just plunged hardcore all year. The government has tried to stem the flow, so to speak, by implementing an official exchange rate of $1 to 42,000 rial, but the actual black market rate has basically become double that. It's like one dollar to ninety thousand real now. Ooh. Yeah, it turns out price fixing doesn't work, especially when you're fixing the price of prices. Like it's just gonna backfire at the end of the day because things are worth what they're worth. And it turns out as the real declines, what that means is that imports become more expensive. And that makes imported food and staples expensive. And Iran depends on a lot of imported food and staples. It makes any businesses that depend on the imports makes their lives pretty expensive and Iran is not big enough to have, you know, fully integrated internal supply chains. And why would it? So this is really painful for the Iranian economy. And without a doubt, the looming reimposition of sanctions plays a role in the most recent decline, although it's definitely not the only driver. And the current set of protests that we're seeing in response to this comes after nationwide protests that were in December and January. And protests have really been going on all year since then. And more opposition to the regime is building. So why are people protesting? And why have protests gone on in some form or another throughout the country since the large-scale ones in January? Well, there's a couple of reasons. People are frustrated now that the JCPOA has failed, the nuclear deal has failed. And before that failed, people were frustrated that the nuclear deal was really only benefiting a very small portion of society, and namely elites with oil interests and the security establishment, which is very closely intermixed with governing institutions in in Iran, as well as the people who control assets. Now, the deal did not do what President Rouhani claimed it would, which is essentially spread the wealth around more evenly. And people are just pissed that the government is spending a bunch of money on foreign adventures in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Lebanon too, to a degree, when food is becoming so expensive at home, food and everything else. I mean, the most recent protests kind of got kickstarted by uh, a bunch of cell phone businesses in these essentially malls when prices plunged and purchasing imported cell phones became so expensive that it was just basically impossible to buy a new product. And with the declining real, business became uncertain because people didn't want to just like buy stuff when they weren't sure what was going to happen to their currency. So that's how that the most recent bouts got started. But frustration with the regime is how in this most recent bout of protests, you get chants like, forget Syria, think about us, and death to Palestine. That's right. Protesters in Iran in the last several days were chanting a death to Palestine. That doesn't mean they actually want to kill Palestinians, but basically they're very frustrated that Iran continues to send money to Hamas when they don't think that the regime is spending enough on spurring economic activity in Iran itself. It's pretty weird given that Iran is the country that brought you protests such as death to Israel and America is the great Satan. (laughs) From the theocracy that brought you classic hits such as (laughs) death to Israel and America the great Satan, their newest hit 
Death to Palestine. Huh? Available now for only 400,000 real. <laughs> what is that now? Like four and a half dollars. Yeah, exactly. If you were an American, that was sort of like prescient during the Iraq war. If you were sitting there going, man, I'm super mad that we're spending all this money on Iraq and Syria when things are expensive and like healthcare is expensive back home. Like think how bad it must be if your economy is to sustain a war in Iraq and Syria. It's just, it's tough. So it means that there's a lot of anger at this point. And one option or one thing to potentially reconsider is, you know, does America have a plan? You know, cause I think that Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran deal is like not exactly a surprise, but it's certainly like one narrative of it is that that there is like no planning or strategy here. And, you know, Trump just wants to undo whatever Obama did. And so like Obama did it, it must be bad. And so let's undo it. And the other is that there is some strategy and there is some desire to you know, weaken a expansionist regional power that's trying to get its clutches into Iraq and Syria and and become a regional hegemon. And so you could play it either way, especially if you took the T word out of the equation and you just said like, hey, rando president did this thing. What would you think? There's there's a lot of ways to interpret it. And so, you know, I, I think the way we like to think about the merit of a policy, regardless of who it comes from, is, you know, what is the national interest or what is the right thing to do is as far as like, you know, is it evil? What is the national interest long-term and short-term? And what are the results of the policy in, with regards to that national interest? That's a good way of judging whether it's a good or a bad policy. If there is a plan or a strategy as, as it relates to pushing back Iran's expansion through the Middle East, because really Iran has been the country that has seemed to benefit the most from the Syrian civil war and fighting back against ISIS in Iraq because they have established really quite powerful militias in Iraq that are loyal to Iran, as well as all of the different forces that Iran funds in Syria, as well as its own military assets in Syria supporting the Assad regime. And up until a point, America, it just didn't really seem like America had a plan to deal with all of this. And, you know, presumably the JCPOA in part was signed to get Iran's nuclear activities tabled for a while, but also in part because the U.S. needed help fighting ISIS on the ground and didn't want to do it ourselves. So alliances with the Kurds were made in Syria, but there was also a tacit agreement between the U.S. and Iran in Iraq, which is why for a long time you had Iran basically telling its loyal militias in Iraq to not attack U.S. forces in Iraq because they were both basically working together at the time to kill ISIS. This is very different from 2007, 2008 during the American occupation when pro-Iran forces were very much killing Americans. And now again, you have pro-Iran forces in Iraq threatening American forces now that ISIS has largely been, at least their territorial holds have been rolled back. So Iran is getting hit with sanctions. Their real is plunging. There is really severe domestic opposition to the regime at home. And a large part of this has to do with how the government's spending money. People are frustrated that the budget is getting devoted towards defense and security when people feel like the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, only really benefited those institutions anyways. And as a result of the protests in December and January, we actually saw the government revise the budget that was proposed that had been one of the sparks to those protests, which was showing an increase in defense spending. And they reallocated more money towards supporting subsidies 
domestic subsidies that were originally going to be cut. And as a result of that, Khamenei had to pull about $2.5 billion out of like Iran's reserve fund to spend more on defense because they needed to maintain a certain amount of defense spending and it wasn't going to come out of the main government budget. So Iran only has so much money to spread around is essential is the essential problem here. And if sanctions force the real down and make everything so expensive in Iran that people are basically willing to go out and protest the regime, which I mean, keep in mind, protesting in Iran, not really the same thing as protesting in America, right? The risks are quite higher. You know, arguably that begins to seem like there is some sort of coherent strategy built up in there, regardless of whether or not the president is responsible for that, for that or not. That is all going on at home in Iran while Israel is striking Iranian positions in Syria and beginning to put more pressure on Iran's presence outside of Iran throughout the Middle East. So that is a trend that is beginning to emerge. Stronger domestic opposition coupled with hard economic problems at home with more pressure pushing back against Iranian expansion in the Middle East. Wow. But that was the first time a lot of listeners heard that version of the story, which is pretty cool. Hashtag geopolitics. Certainly interesting. Yes. So finally, Turkey. So another place where some really interesting stuff has happened. Erdogan, the president, has won another term in office with 52%. If he's starting to sound like Putin, I won't tell you you're right, but I won't tell you you're wrong either. And the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, his party, won the parliamentary election, but not with an outright majority. So it actually lost some seats compared to what it had before. So this alone isn't that big a deal other than like, hey, when's this guy finally going to, you know, let someone else be in charge? But earlier this year, a close referendum altered Turkey's constitution to give the president significantly more power. And this vote that happened Sunday got rid of the role of prime minister entirely. There is no more prime minister in Turkey, even though it's a parliamentary system. So Erdogan is now both head of state and head of government. So there are countries where someone is both head of state and head of government. The United States is one of them. But in a parliamentary system, when you absorb the prime minister's powers into the presidency, it gets a little bit dodgier. So, for example, Erdogan can now dissolve parliament. The president cannot dissolve Congress. That's not a thing in the United States. But, you know, Erdogan just say parliament by He can appoint ministers, judges, and officials without any checks. He can go mess with the judicial system pretty much as much as he wants. So he's quite powerful now. And here's the thing. The the new powerful presidency didn't go into effect immediately after the referendum. It went into effect now at this vote. And so now Erdogan suddenly has these powers and a much more direct command over the military, thanks in part to the coup and the reaction to the coup. So, holy smokes, this guy has a lot of power in one country. Now, he cannot pass laws on his own. And because the AKP, that Justice and Development Party, doesn't have a majority, uh, they'll depend on their more secular junior partner in order to pass the laws that Erdogan wants. And so there is some leverage that someone besides the AKP has, but it's a lot going on. Small correction, the referendum that conferred greater power power in the presidency was in 2017, not earlier this year. Ah, no big deal. Thanks. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. It was last now, year. Great. Why this matters? A couple of reasons. President Erdogan is now arguably the most powerful leader in modern Turkish history since 
Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk founded the modern version of Turkey, the Turkish Republic, after the demise of the Ottoman Empire following World War I. The difference is Ataturk wanted to establish and maintain a secular republic for a country, which is a stark contrast to the very Islamic Ottoman Empire that had been around since 1299. Now, Ataturk felt this was necessary in order to incorporate Turkey into the new global order and, importantly, catch Turkey up both economically and militarily with the Western European powers who had really dealt a, a very strong blow to the Ottoman Empire during the war, even though it was already in the process of dissolving before that. Erdogan, on the other hand, is often described as you know, using neo-Ottoman rhetoric and incorporating a greater amount of Islamic ideals into daily life and referencing this in his speeches to drill up support amongst more conservative constituencies. And while the country is still secular, Erdogan is clearly garnering greater support from religious conservatives who believe that Turkey should have a stronger Islamic identity and that this shouldn't be separated from daily life or government. They should be uh, part and parcel with one another. So this is all coming as Turkey begins to again expand in the Middle East, invading Syria, first in northern Syria and then in northwestern Syria and Afrin. Turkey is conducting more operations in northern Iraq against Kurdish positions there. And, you know, it's arguably more useful for Turkey to have sort of this pan-Islamic identity if it is going to be acquiring more territory outside of Turkey and needing to govern populations that aren't of Turkic ethnicity. So anyways, that's I guess I'm doing the thinking for you a little bit there. That's my take on it. But that is a distinction between... Erdogan and Ataturk, even though Erdogan is increasingly a very powerful leader in Turkey as a result of this election. So that is our whirlwind tour of lots of interesting stuff going on in Africa, the Middle East, North Korea. And, you know, that has rippling effects all across the world. We've already given you a bunch of reconsider moments on each of these. So you can just savor each of those morsels rather than have a giant meal at the end. We're going to be back next time. Not sure what the topic is. India is on the brain. We've got a few other things that we're thinking about. We do always love listener requests. They are our favorite source of topics. So send them our way. Reconsider pod on Twitter and Facebook or go to the website reconsidermedia.com and shoot us an email or a note there. With that, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Sandra signing off. See you next time, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 